But here we stand 500 years later, and we celebrate the moment, and yet another moment in human history where truth went against power. Truth was crushed, but won. There's this picture. Have you ever heard? Uh, oh, man, now my, my brain's not. Uh, oh, okay, the parable of the mustard seed. Okay, I heard a brilliant speaker recently talk about the mustard seed and the parable of the mustard seed. And Jesus said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you know, you'll be able to move a mountain. And he said, here's the deal. When Jesus talks about, he tells the story about the mustard seed that gets planted and it starts off tiny, but then it grows and it becomes a shelter for all of the birds and everything comes to live within it, right? Are you familiar with this parable that I'm talking about right now? Okay. The mustard seed, there's no such thing as a mustard tree. And I think that when we when we listen to that story from Jesus, we kind of picture this big tree growing out of the mustard seed and the birds come to live in it. But that's not, that's not how the mustard seed, that's not how the mustard plant works. The mustard plant is a, a plant that grows close to the ground, but it's a weed and it's infectious. And it spreads and it takes over territory and it's impossible to get rid of. And, it, and farmers in Jesus' time were constantly fighting the mustard plant. They were constantly ripping it out of their fields. And then three weeks later, they'd come back and it would be everywhere and they would have to rip it out of their fields again because that's what happened. And here's Jesus giving this picture of the kingdom of heaven of what truth really does is it begins to grow and spread and it's going to, it doesn't matter how many times you tear it out, doesn't matter how many times you rip it back, okay? It continues to spread and infest everything and you can't stop it. And yeah, birds and animals live in it or whatever because it's this really thick ground level uh, vegetation that gets stuck in there. But reason I meant, the reason I'm saying this is because we always love to have this triumphal picture of the gospel as this kind of like gigantic tree over the... No, 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 no. That's not how the gospel works. The gospel works at the lowest level. The gospel goes to the, to the most broken, to the hurting, to the weak, to the meek, to the one that isn't triumphal, to the one that doesn't have it all figured out. And the gospel spreads through the people, that layer of people who don't have any hope and who will grab onto anything for hope. And the gospel goes to them and it explodes there. And that's what it did. The first 300 years of Christianity was a story of misfit after misfit after misfit. Not very intelligent, not very talented, not and and definitely not very powerful. These weren't people that could make rules, etc. And the church grew unbelievably through the under the the under layers of society for those first 300 years until it had covered the entire Roman Empire. All the slaves were Christians. All of the servants were Christians. The lower members of the households were Christians. The only people that weren't Christians yet were like the emperor and some of these guys that were in charge because their system of power had been built upon this Roman religion. And they had to pay homage to this Roman religion to maintain their power. And so every time Christianity would begin to, to, to rise up 
a little bit, the Roman power would say, no, and they would try and crush it again. And different emperors, you know, sent Christians to the lions and, and Nero famously would uh, uh, cover Christians with oil and tie them to a post and light them on fire. And then they were his lamps for dinner. Okay. That was, yeah, right? Yeah, he was not a nice man. Um, anyway, that's what he did. Uh, he would eat dinner to the light of burning Christians. And, uh, and uh, you know, it, it, cha it totally changes what, when Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Maybe you're the light of the world because you're burning. <laughs> I'm on fire for Jesus. Well, you know, it's a whole different thing. Okay? But I'm telling you, that... But that right there is how the, that's why you're a Christian is because of people like that. The only reason you know the story of Jesus Christ is because of hundreds and thousands of people who lived that lifestyle and changed the culture of the world, not because they were in power, but because they weren't. And one of the worst things that ever happened to Christianity was Constantine the Great, who was the first Roman emperor that claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. A lot of people wonder if he actually was or not. We don't really know. He definitely wasn't when he started, but then his mother was. But anyway, when Christianity became the religion of the powerful, we changed from standing against power to cooperating with power, and the dilution of the gospel began. The process that was eventually going to lead to Martin Luther nailing 95 theses on the door began with the church changing from standing against power to cooperating with power. So those of you that are in this room that are go, going to go on to lead ministries and go on to lead churches and all of that kind of thing, I want you to think about that. Because it is incredibly tempting to, to step into the flow of our culture and pick up uh, the, the trappings of power and use them to try and elevate our message. Okay? But that is an unbelievably dangerous thing because somewhere along the line, power is going to ask you to give up something that you really care about. But it always does it subtly and we become that wonderful frog in the pot that boils to death because it happens incrementally. It doesn't happen quickly. It doesn't happen surprisingly. And all of a sudden we will wake up and realize that we don't even believe the things that we believe to begin with. And it's because we've been so connected with, so cooperating with power, that now we've lost our way. What did Jesus say when... Salt loses its saltiness. What is it good for? Thrown out and trampled. Exactly. The minute, the minute power, the minute power.
power sees that you're no longer cooperating with it, it will drop you like a bad habit. Yeah. It's something I think about a lot as a pastor. Let's pray, and then we'll get into Philippians. I know, I, that was an interesting... I feel like that was a prophetic word, I honestly do, for the people in this room. So let that just brew. You guys have any questions or comments before we switch gears? Anybody? Questions or comments? You guys are very quiet this morning. Was that like too heavy to get started with, or okay? No, it's, <laughs> it's also been like heavy since we got here this morning. Oh, so, really? Yeah, like in Bible study. Bible study was really good. Amber did do that, mm -hmm. and she gave a really good word, and it like you know, it's good. It was heavy. Okay. Well, Father, we just thank you for the the movement of your Holy Spirit. I thank you, Lord, that you are here with us. And I thank you for a man 500 years ago who said, I believe you, the word of God over the word of the Pope or tradition or man's tradition. And I am going to stand with the word of God even if it, I get killed. And I thank you for that. So, Lord, I just pray that as we dive into the word of God again, that we would have that same spirit about us, that we would rather be in line with you than be popular. We'd rather be in line with you than have things be easy for us. Come spirit of repentance. And permeate this room. Holy Spirit, I ask right now that you would reveal every place in us where we have cooperated with the principalities and powers, where we have cooperated with the systemic sin in which we were created, in which we were germinated, and from which we were born. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring God ideas into our souls that will do battle with the cultural ideas that we've always looked at, held on to, and, and, and thought were important. That the truth would be what guides us. Not the things that we've learned from the air we breathe. Holy Spirit, we give you permission to change our DNA. In Jesus' name, amen. At some point along this, along this road uh, this year, I'm going to pull out my prayer liturgy and teach it to you. Um, uh, and there is, there's a prayer in, we, you know, we, I begin that morning liturgy 
every day, um, or very early on in the liturgy of the day, I get to a confession of sin. And I don't think it's a, I think it's a really good thing to be reminded every day that I, that, uh, that, that I need to be confessing and repenting. Um, and the, the guy that really, that, that gave me this liturgy, he put it together from hundreds of prayer, uh, patterns that have existed throughout the history of the church the last 2000 years. And, uh, and he said, don't change the words of this because it says most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you. He said, don't make that personal. I mean, yes, make it personal. I have sinned. He said, but it's also important that not only am I confessing my own sin, but I'm confessing the sin of my culture and I'm confessing the sin of my generations and I'm confessing the sin of the people around whom I live. If you go read Daniel's prayer uh, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel was a righteous man. He was a follower of God. But as he prays, he's praying as a representative of the children of Israel. And he confesses sins that he never personally committed, but his people did. And God's response to that prayer is dramatic. Because he then shows Daniel the, the future history of the children of Israel until the end of the world in response to Daniel's prayer. That's a, that's a good prayer, right? I mean, come on. So, standing in a place where I am confessing, plus the truth is you are connected to and involved with and dirtied by Sin that you never committed yourself, but that you're a part of. The clothing you wear that was created by people who don't make nearly enough money, and because you're not a rich person, you buy the cheapest clothes. Well, that's a sin. Just Let's just be honest. We are oppressing people in another nation. You don't, it's not something you consciously did. It wasn't like you were like, <laughs> I'm going to oppress someone. But you did, and you are. The very clothes on your back are oppressing other people. <laughs> so when you put it on today, you were complicit in sin that you didn't even personally commit. Are you with me in this? So, so... Confessing sin. Right? <laughs> but then the yarn and stuff you use. Guess what? So you're gonna have to raise the goats and you're have to spin the yarn. Okay. <laughs> anyway, this this prayer. Most merciful God, we confess we have sinned against you. In thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we've left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will 
and walk in your ways in the glory of your name. Amen. That's a prayer that I pray a lot. And I think it's a good prayer to pray because we don't understand the communal water we swim in, this culture you live in, this place where you exist. Sin is everywhere around you and you are covered with it. That's a nice devotional thought for the day. Um, and I don't remember why I went to this. Why, why, oh, because I prayed that in the prayer. I don't think it is a bad thing. And to ask the Holy Spirit to make us aware of the ideas that exist. You all have a lens through which you view the world, which was given to you by your culture, by the things that you watched, the things that you read, the things you listened to, the the place you grew up, the parents that you had. You have a lens that was given to you by the age in which you were born, the place you were born, the people who were around you as you were raised, and the things that you're doing right now. And a part of, and we view the whole world through that lens, period. Not just the world, but the Word of God and Jesus and ourselves. We view everything through this lens. And here's the problem. There are issues with the lens. It's not God's lens. It's mine. It's a very human filter through which I see the world. And there are things that are wrong with it. And the beautiful thing about the Word of God is the Word of God can come in and it can clash with your lens and it can make things difficult and you feel something and you're like, what is that? And you begin to question your lens. And the Holy Spirit's the only one that can do that. The Holy Spirit's the only one that can pull you outside of yourself and say, look at that. And he uses the word of God to do that. So as we go through these things, I'm asking for myself and for you that the Holy Spirit will pull us out of the soup of ideas that we've existed in. How many metaphors have I used now for this? <laughs> I mean, that's because we don't have good language for it. If we did, I would use that, but we don't. And so I have to use metaphor. How many... The Holy Spirit has to come and he has to pull us outside of our lens and show us where our lens is warped and show us where our lens is messed up. And we have to challenge that lens and we have to ask the Holy Spirit to shift that lens and change it so that we can see things clearly. The Apostle Paul said it like this, right now we see through a glass darkly. Those were his words. But then we will see perfectly. There's a day coming when your lens is going to be taken away and you're going to see things as they are. But right now, you have, for you Doctor Who fans, a perception filter that changes the way that you look at the world. Okay. Are there any Doctor Who fans in the room? Anybody? No? No? Yeah! Woo! Who's your favorite doctor? I don't really know. I just kind of like go with it. Like, you don't know who your favorite doctor I'm is? not really. I've only started like the first like season. Okay. Well, then you're forgiven. But soon, soon you're going to have to tell me who your favorite doctor is. Well, yes. Yeah. But you didn't raise your hand. You should have raised your hand. I did. I do know you. But still you didn't raise your hand. Stand proud with the doctor. Raise, raise your, raise your sonic screwdriver high. 
and think and click. Um, I I had I had David Tennant's screwdriver for a long time. I don't know where it is. And I have a TARDIS on my desk. Yeah, it's a cookie jar. <laughs> but if you touch the top of it, it makes the TARDIS noise, you know. It's and you awesome. Get what? You yeah, it's beautiful. Wyatt Osborne gave it to me. Yeah, <laughs> Okay, where are we? Uh, verse 17. What then? Only that in every way. We got to verse 17. All right, we're at verse 19. Wow, we're making it through, guys. You wait and look and see how many notes I have on the rest of this chapter, and it's going to be fun. Plus, it's already like 10 to 11, and we haven't even got some flippings yet. Do you mind my preambles? Okay, all right. And it's just what I'm thinking about at any particular moment. And today I'm thinking about the Reformation and what a combined gift and curse it is. Today, today, the 500th anniversary is today of the Protestant Reformation, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. That's what started me on that whole topic that we were on. There we go. The beautiful and horrifying Protestant Reformation. I both love it and hate it. Anyway, okay. Okay, verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Man, what a statement. Seriously, what a statement. He is going, look, I'm in prison right now. I'm in prison. I'm still trying to do everything that God asked me to do. I'm writing letters to the churches. I'm preaching to my captors. I'm talking to anybody that comes to visit me. I'm trying to use this moment, I'm trying to understand and take advantage of the opportunities of the situation in which the Lord has allowed me to be. Okay, here I am sitting in the middle of the jail. Why does the Lord have me here? That I don't really know yet, but I know I'm going to use every moment of this to continue to do what God wants me to do. And regardless of what happens, I'm confident of this, that Christ will be exalted through me. And then he says, either by my continuing to live or by my death. Okay, death is a very real possibility for Paul. And not this time, but later, his imprisonment will result in his death. They're going to kill him. They're going to chop his head off. That's coming. And Paul knows that. He's pretty, I mean, at least we, we think he knows that because uh, of what Jesus told him and what Ananias told him when, when he came and... Uh, you okay? Yeah, I was... <laughs> yeah. And, he knows that already. He kind of understands that that's probably down the road for him, that he's probably going to be killed. He doesn't know if it's going to be this time or if it's going to be some other time. But the his only thing, the only thing he's really interested in is that Christ be exalted through him. I want Jesus 
to be exalted through whatever happens with me. That is a, that is a statement and a half. Okay, how many times have we been in the midst of a situation where we're like, but God, is our attitude in that moment ever? Is our attitude ever, Lord, whatever, whatever your purpose is in this moment, all my only request, my only request. Notice Paul is not saying, please pray that they will let me out of prison without killing me. He does not ask for that prayer. If you were in prison, would you not ask for that prayer? I think I would ask for that prayer. Please pray they don't kill me. I mean, I may not ask that prayer, but I might say, please pray they don't torture me. Death I'm not so much afraid of, but torture, I don't enjoy pain. You know what I mean? Come on, people. Are you with me on this? <laughs> I can deal with death, but pain? Uh. That's why I'm going to pick a fight, you know in the tribulation when the antichrist says, get the marker or we kill you. And I'm going to go to the nearest marking place and just be like, the antichrist has a big butt, you know, or something. And I can just like, kill me, you know, just, you know, because I don't really want to be tortured. I don't know anything about anything. Just shoot me. Right. Just go on. Chop my head off. Do something. I'm serious. <laughs> Even now, as always, that Christ would be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And then verse 21 is one of those verses we've all heard. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Amen. What? Paul was a brilliant writer. To live is Christ, to die is gain. What does it mean, since you quote it all the time? My understanding of it is that to live, uh, the love part, at least, to live is Christ, is that no matter what you're going through in life, that it's for the betterment of the work you're doing in obedience and what God has you in, no matter if you're in a good situation or a bad situation, whether you're in suffering and pain or torture, um, that as long as you're going forward with what the Lord has done for you, you're still in good, and you should still be praising the work that you're in, um, and that you shouldn't fear death, because death is not something you fear, that's the next step, it is that eternity, it is that moment where you see Christ, where you be with him, and no longer have to, I mean, some people would say, just <coughs> endure the suffering of this, this human body, and to be limited on this earth, and not see your Heavenly Father, and there's Jesus the Savior in the room that awaits for you in heaven. It's pretty good. Not bad. Whoever your youth pastor was did a great job. I, um, <laughs> I'm preaching on humility on Sunday. Um, <laughs> I really am. Yeah, so I got to be as pri as prideful as possible till Sunday, and then I have to. <laughs> I practice humility all week. Oh. <laughs> I'm so proud of my humility. Okay. <laughs> me to live is Christ to die is gain so to live is Christ to live is to give my life for his purpose here on earth it's I'm stepping into the role check this out oh Jesus 
in John 17, in his high priestly thing that he did with the disciples right before the crucifixion, he's like, he says to them this, he says, what I've been doing in the world, I now am sending you to do in the world. I'm, I'm ceasing to be Christ in the world so that you can become Christ in the world. You know what the word Christ means? Anyone? Christ, the word. Christ, somebody. Come on. Come on. Give you a hint. It is a synonym with the word Messiah. They mean the exact same thing. So if you know what Messiah means, then you know what Christ means. Yes, correct. But what does it mean? I uh, see that. That's what's failing me. <laughs> Anointed one. Okay. okay. Mashiach means, it literally means, in the, in the, the Hebrew language is a pictorial language. So it's always a picture of something in the real world that's being used for another thing. And Mashiach means to rub something like this. And it's a picture of God picking up someone and just going, and then like putting them back in the world and saying, now you smell like me. <laughs> Seriously. It's a picture of God covering someone with his essence, his power, his glory. Now, Jesus was already God before he became human. But there were more anointed ones than just Jesus. Did you know that Jesus was the last Messiah, but he wasn't the first? Oh, it's true. King Saul was a Messiah. King David was Messiah. Okay, check this one out. King Cyrus of Persia was a Messiah. Daniel calls him that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Old Testament refers to them as anointed ones. But we could say Christ small c instead of Christ large c. See, anointed one took on an entirely different meaning when the Son of God himself became our anointed one. But there are still, it's like the difference between someone who operates in the spirit of Antichrist and then the actual capital A Antichrist who we will see come uh, in the days to come. Right? Are you with me here? Yeah. Right? We have we have Christ, big C, that's Jesus, but we have Christ's. This whole room is full of Christ's. You are a Christ. You are an anointed one. You are a Christian. Take the last three letters off. What does it say? Christ. Okay? That's what you are. You are a small anointed one. A miniature version of what Jesus was in fullness, you are in part. So when the Apostle Paul says, for me to live as Christ, what he is literally saying is, for me to live is I am going to continue to operate in the anointing and the calling that God has given me in this moment. For me to live in this moment is to continue to be everything God's called me to be for this people at this time in this place. I'm going to stay a Christ 
in this place. Now, do not hear me say that God makes you God, because that is not the truth. Okay, there's uh, there's some stuff out there. There are people out there that are saying things like, you know, Jesus said, ye are gods. Oh, come on, people. Jesus said, ye are Elohim, which means mighty ones. That, that term is used both for God and for angels in the, in the Old Testament. So stop messing around. You know what I'm talking about. Give me a break. Okay. I am not saying you are being deified because you're not. Except kind of you are. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's very different. As he is, so we are in this world. That's the truth. You carry the power, the anointing, the authority of Jesus in the world. Now, before you get all excited about that, remember, they nailed Jesus to a tree. <laughs> okay? Before you get all, I am going to heal everything that moves. All right, good for you. I hope you do. I really do hope that you... You know, if you really have that kind of faith and you can walk in that kind of crazy anointing, there have been Christians in in church history that have emptied hospitals, okay? And I want to see that again. I want to see that again. You know, people that just get, somehow they, they, they penetrate in to that level of faith where literally nothing is impossible and they walk in that and they see it every day and crazy, crazy, amazing thing ha things happen. Okay, that's available to everyone in this room, just FYI, if you want it. <laughs> it's true. God's no respecter of persons. If you want to operate in that level of anointing, pursue it. Pursue it. Because you are Christ. You are the body of Christ, yes or no? Okay? Now, when I look at my hand, do I say, well, this is my hand, but it's not Josh. <laughs> this is me. As much as anything, any other part of me is me, this is me. And that separation that we always have of, well, that was Jesus, or that was Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul was a murderer, Okay? He would not, there's no way the Assemblies of God would ever ordain him. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it's just true. Well, maybe not all of them. I mean, John seems to be fine. Peter never really, Peter never killed anybody, but he put his foot in his mouth every five minutes. Um, Thomas was a doubter. You know, you know, James was a hothead. You know, we've got lots of, you know, they all had issues. That's true. But they didn't murder people, though. No, they didn't. But some of them wanted to. Both John and yeah. James were like, burn this city to the ground. You know, and Jesus was like, oh, boys, relax. It's going to be okay. Off. That's true. It was attempted murder. He was just a bad aim with a sword. Plus, it was probably really dark, too. So we can give him a little bit of <laughs> Give him a little, at least like, he tried his he took his sword and he's like ah and the guy's like whoa and then it <laughs> 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 
<laughs> my ear, my ear. And she's like, here, hold up. Just, you know. <laughs> just put it back on. <laughs> oh, what a picture of Jesus it is, though. This group of people are here to take him and kill him, and he heals them. I, uh, Sunday I spoke on the ge- on gentleness. That was our our topic on Sunday, and I am shocked at the gentleness of God. I'm blown away, and that's just another picture. These people have come full of aggression and hatred, and they are dragging Jesus away to a false trial where. They have hired people to falsely accuse him, and Jesus knows it. And what is Jesus' response? Oh, let me heal you. What? What? Who is this man? Oh. Who is this man? Okay. um. (laughs) The Savior. Savior. Okay. Yes. It's from the Savior. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, to live is to continue to be Christ, but to die is to go and be with Christ. To live is to be Christ, but to die is to be with Christ. And Paul's like, I can't really decide. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. Either one, I'm good. (laughs) For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But, verse 22, if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. Here's my question. Did God give him the choice? Did God give him the choice? I am a firm believer, firm, firm believer, that our relationship with Jesus and our forward motion in the gospel and the things that we are moving forward with doing and the, and, and the things that, that, that God very often, instead of telling you, go to Africa, okay, will come to you and say, what do you want to do? How many times have you been praying about what does God want me to do next and you aren't getting an answer, it's like, God answer me! And nothing comes. Does that happen to you? It's happened to me over and over again. Do you want to know why it's happened to you? Let me clear up something, some fogginess. God is not saying to you, when God doesn't give you an answer right away, okay, most of the time, it is not God going, well, you need to fast a few more days. Most of the time, it's not God saying, I know what I want you to do, but I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) And we kind of rail against him. I mean, I have gotten really offended with God. I have one day to make this decision, and you're not telling me anything. Do you know what I think it really is? Do you want to know? I think God is going, decide. Like, Lord, what do you want me to do? Um, but in everything, let it be your will. Yeah. Um, 
he says sometimes as Christians we can use, oh, I want it to be God's will as an excuse. Yeah. As a point where we, we put off our own responsibility, our own decision to make, and put it on God. Oh, God, what do you want me to do? Oh, God, what do you want me to do? That way, when it doesn't end up good or it doesn't end up how we wanted it to look, we can blame God instead of ourselves. Precisely. Yeah. Steve Cormick, he said that God can't um, bless or correct a decision. I like the guy. I'm a little worried that he's playing a little bit too much into this cooperation with power thing that we talked about. It bugs me a little bit. But I like what he, I like, I haven't heard a sermon that's that way. It's just the culture of the church that he's raised up that makes me a little worried. That's my only worry, but it is a worry. Yeah. Why do I believe that? Why do you believe that? Like, I know, like, okay, so, you know, I was raised in a church where, you know, like, where you pray about stuff and God directly, like, you have to do this or you have mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, but I remember you telling us, like, our first year that, you know, like, when you raise your kids, Mm-hmm. You teach them in the way that they should go, so yeah. that they're able to decide for themselves which way they should go. Yes, older. correct. And so, it's like, I just want to know, like, why you believe that God, like, does that, like, went with our decisions and stuff like that. And do you believe with like every decision? I think that sometimes God makes His direction to you extremely clear. Okay, I think this is. I'll, I'll tell you about my life experience, and then I'll tell you about Scripture. Okay, my life experience is that more often than not, when I have gone to the Lord for direction, he's been silent. And that the times when he has spoken direction to me are the times when I wasn't looking for it. When I was headed in a specific direction, not thinking that it was time to choose, not thinking that it was time to move, not thinking that I had a decision to make. And the Lord came into the middle of that moment and said, stop what you're doing and go that way. Okay, I will give you a for instance. In 2008, I was working full time at an insurance company. Okay, I knew I had a call of God in my life, but I had never... But I had also, and and I was doing a ton of work in the church. I was the worship leader of the youth group. I was teaching Sunday school classes. I was leading worship at the International House of Prayer. I was doing, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, I was also organizing the small groups of the youth group at that time as well. Um, I was working at least 20, 25 hours a week on church stuff, in ministry stuff, okay? And because I knew this is what God had for me in the future, but at that moment, that's where I, that I, I had not felt a release to like quit my job and look for a full-time ministry job or like send out letters and be like, Hey, I'm a cool guy. Come hire me. You know what I mean? Like can people do that. You know, I mean, that's just, I didn't, I had never felt like God wanted me to do that. And so I was sitting still and trying to do everything God wanted me to do and still provide for my family. And in 2008, I think it was 2000, yes, it was, 2008 in, it was 
uh, August, middle of August, and I'm sitting at my desk at work, and like a lightning bolt from heaven comes a word from God that just like, I mean, it hit me so hard. I have never heard God more loudly than I did this day. Quit all ministry you're doing for an entire year. That was the word. And I, I remember I was in a chair with wheels and I just kicked back from the desk like, what? Like just completely, whoa, 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 whoa. Now, I did not hear an audible voice. I've never heard the audible voice of God. You can do that whenever you want. That would be great. But, but this was as audible as I've ever heard. It was so loud. It was so striking. It was, it was just no question at all God was speaking to me. And I wasn't praying. I was just doing my work. I think I was listening to NPR. I mean, I was just like, <laughs> and then boom, quit everything for a year. You know, like, what? What? And the truth is that at the time, this church was in the process of preparing to hire a junior high youth pastor, and it was probably going to be me. Okay. And I was kind of, that was kind of my trajectory, right? This was my plan for getting into full-time ministry, was to get that job. And to move and to continue to move forward from there in full-time ministry, right? Which is why I was working so hard. One of the reasons I was working so hard. Also, I just had the call of God in my life. I couldn't do anything else. I had to do what God had called me to do. I had to lead worship. I had to teach people. I had to do what God wanted me to do. That's what I was, these are my giftings. And I knew if I didn't do them, I would shrivel up and die. And here is the Lord. Just quit everything. I did not expect that word. I was not asking for direction. I was doing what God told me to do. I wasn't in disobedience. That was a Friday. Okay. Saturday and Sunday, there was going to be this big, well, Friday night, Saturday and Sunday was going to be a big conference of the international house of prayer here, uh, uh, was one of the regional one thing conferences. And, and the Lord said, I told you this today. So that this weekend at the conference, you and I can have this discussion for the next three days. He's like, I want you to listen. Every preacher I heard was reading my stinking mail. They just were. They were preaching directly to me the whole weekend. I'm like, oh, shut up. You know? We had these great preachers that they're just like, you know, <laughs> they were talking directly to me. I knew that I knew that I knew that I needed to be done. And it hurt like crazy and it's not what I wanted to do. But God was speaking. No question. Okay. But when I finished school, I'm like, Lord, what do you want me to do? <laughs> Here I am. Speak to me. 
I was reading the Bible. I was getting great stuff from the Word, but no direction whatsoever. I was doing the whole drop your Bible, let it fall open, and what comes up, right? I was doing everything. I was like, I'm like driving. I'm like, Lord, if you want me to do this, then have a squirrel run across to the left, you know? Nothing. No squirrels. Okay? Nothing. I'm like, Lord, just form the clouds into an arrow, right? What am I supposed to do? Nothing, 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 nothing. Nothing. And I'm like, you jerk. How can I be obedient to you when you're not speaking to me? Right? Do you know what the Lord eventually said to me? He said, I've given you dreams, I've given you vision, and I've given you a heart after me. Make a decision. <laughs> He's like, I've equipped you. Make a decision. <laughs> and I was like, but Lord, that's not fair because how do I know it's your will? And the Lord was like, the only reason you want to know whether it's my will or not is because you want to blame me if it doesn't work. Gosh. They hit me like a ton of bricks when I read that that day. Oh my gosh. Man. That was one of those shut up. Just shut up, God. You, how dare you look at me? <laughs> ah! Are you naked before the Lord right now? <laughs> right? <laughs> how many times has God ever spoken to you in such a revealing way that you just felt embarrassed because you were like, you're not supposed to see that part of me. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I remember I took a personality test. I think it was the Myers-Briggs. And one of the things that it says, it says, this is what they want you to think about them. And, but this is what's really true. <laughs> it's like in the test. And I was like, oh! <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember now. Barry has it sitting in his folder somewhere. You can go and find it if you want. <coughs> Pastor Barry. <laughs> I I want I don't remember which one I am. INTI, is that a thing? Yeah, I think so. I saved my email. I've got it somewhere. Anyway. I think. So here's Apostle Paul, and he says. I do not know which to choose. Did he have a choice? And I think maybe he did. I think maybe he did. Verse 23, but I'm hard pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. He desires heaven, honestly. He counts it better than the place that he's in. I, I, a lot of times in my study when I see stuff that I'm like, ooh, me too. You know, I just said, Father, teach me to love heaven more than earth. I want to be more excited about being with Jesus than I am about Starbucks. Or whatever else. Remember when you were a kid? And you were like, 
I just hope Jesus doesn't come before I get married because I want to know what sex is like. Remember, guys? Remember that? Yeah. I don't know. Ladies, you might be there. <clears throat> you might still be there, guys. I don't know. I mean, you might still be there going, I really... You know, they clothe it in, I want to have a family. No, they don't. They just want to have a family. <laughs> I told you I'd be honest with you. I mean, come on. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Need to be in the place where we love heaven more than earth, where, where our desire to be with Jesus is more powerful than our desire to experience anything that happens here. But, I asked another question in my notes, is this what it looks like to store up treasure in heaven? <laughs> Jesus said that it is where our heart would be, where that's where our, our, where our treasure is, that's where our heart would be. That's what Jesus said. So if we get to the place where we desire heaven more than earth, is that's a God thing because Jesus said, store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy, where the thief can't break in and steal, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. When, when Jesus becomes our treasure, we'll want him more than we do anything around here. And he says that heaven is desirable, not because of streets of gold or eternal gulf. He says, having the desire to depart, why? And be with Christ. Jesus is the reason heaven is desirable. If you're still in this for just fire insurance, you're missing it. Jesus is the reason heaven is desirable. It's not just because hell's really going to suck. And it is. But Jesus is the reason heaven is desirable and Jesus is the reason people go to heaven is because they want him. And if, you, it, isn't, if it isn't that you want him, then I don't know if you're saved. Here's my question. Are you ready for this? If You knew that you could live your entire life however you wanted and still not go to hell. What would your life look like? Because if if your life would change, if, you, if you're saying, if I knew I could do anything I wanted to and still not have it be eternally punished for that, if your life would, if, if, if you would, knowing that, change the way you live your life, then I worry about your salvation. Because we're not in this to escape from hell. We are in this to pursue Jesus. We pursue Jesus because he's the best thing. He's the satisfying thing. Jesus is the one who makes human life worth living. And I would say that to you. I would just, as a thought experiment, how would your life change if you knew you could live it any way you wanted and would not end up in the fires of hell? How would your life change? And if the answer, if you have... If, 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 if you're like, my life would completely change, then you're in this for the wrong reason. 
and your heart's not where it should be, and you need to ask, you need to get on your knees and you need to go after Jesus. You need to say, Jesus, make yourself the highest desire of my soul. Because here's the reality of it. That's the gospel that will draw people. The gospel that will draw people is not the gospel that's rescue from hell. The rescue from hell saves people for five minutes. It doesn't save people for a lifetime. Rescue from hell saves people for five minutes. It doesn't save people for a lifetime. Fear can only motivate them in the presence of a threat. And the minute their brain gets away from the threat, they're going to act differently. Okay, I know this because I have children. And when I'm in the room, they act differently than when I'm not in the room. Because when the threat is in the room, and when the threat's not in the room, your behavior shifts. And the fear of hell is only going to motivate you as long as you feel it. We've got to get away from leading people to Jesus because he's the opposite direction of fire. We've got to put Jesus out there as the most delightful, most satisfying, most joyful way to live human existence is the way that Jesus taught us to live. And preach that because that's the truth. And you were created, human, the human species was created to live the Jesus way. That is the most beautiful, most satisfying, most desirable way to live. It's painful at times, but it's worth it, worth it, worth it. The only reason it's painful at times is because we have all these strongholds built in us from the way that the world wants us to live. The pain comes from us being having that cancer cut out of us. That's what that pain comes from. If we didn't have that, that cancer in us, it wouldn't be painful at all. We would be like, I love this. Living for you and not for me. And even people in the psychological world today, they understand and they know that it is the people that live for something bigger than themselves that are truly happier than everybody else. The people that are self-focused are depressed. They are full of anxiety. They're full of fear. And they never find rest. But people that live for something bigger than themselves are deeply satisfied, full of joy, they actually have hope. What's that? Yeah. Amen. No, I love it. That's a question that I use for my own heart a lot. really do. And there are preachers out there that would hate that question. One of my favorite preachers in the world is John Piper, and he would hate that question. He would say, no, that's not okay. Because, you know, he disagrees. But it's been a really helpful question for me because I want my life to be about loving Jesus. I don't want my life to be about Hating hell. That's, uh, I mean, not that I, I've always had a problem with um, that 
God's an AdWords message, right? Yeah. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. No, I hate it. It's it's a disgusting, just spiteful, hateful message, and it doesn't portray Jesus at all. But anyway, keep going. Why am I reading this? What makes me mad is that the greatest revival in American history is portrayed through that sermon. Okay, a move of God which shifted this nation from immorality, brokenness, and drunkenness to a Christ-following nation. I mean, literally shifted the entire nation to be followers of Jesus. And the footnote we have in history about the Great Awakening is sinners in the hands of an angry God. It infuriates me. Not only that, but if you read Jonathan Edwards, okay, he talks a thousand times more about joy than he does about hell. That was the primary message of his life was joy. Oh, we're not going to go there. Speaking of cooperating with power, I'm just that anyway. Oh, well. When the church starts smelling corporate, you need to run. That's how I feel. Anyway, I'm done. That's all I'm going to say about that. Because I don't want to get bitter. It isn't because there isn't anything to say, but it's because I don't want to get I I for I don't want to speak ill of a of anyone who's trying to love Jesus. Even if I disagree with their method, I don't. I just I don't want to. That's okay. And I don't have anything uplifting to say. So. I'm trying to do better. This message on gentleness has messed with my head so much because I'm an American and we hate gentleness. We like nuclear weapons. We like capitalism. We like, I love you, but it's true. And capitalism is not gentle. It's the opposite of gentleness. It's kill or be killed. Okay. We like, we like, it's competition. It's, you know, I, these are the things we like. We like, that's what we like. We like the excellence going to rise to the top, the, the powerful, you know, that's what we enjoy. And everybody that loves President Trump is like, we finally got a man who's not afraid of anybody. <laughs> but a man who doesn't even know the meaning of the word gentle. And here we look at Jesus. We look at Jesus a man who heals the ear of one who's taking him to the cross. Jesus knows the truth, that you don't bring aggression when gentleness is the tool you need. They brought the woman who had been caught in adultery to him and they threw her at his feet and said, kill her, Jesus. What do we do with this woman? The, the law says we should kill her. It was this aggressive, fist-clenched, destroy her! And Jesus responds, not with, you foul, blah, 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 horrible people, how dare you, you're just as guilty as she is. That's not what he does. What does he do? Hey. <laughs> I don't know that any of you are less guilty than she. You know, isn't he, he? He's just hey, if if you're without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. Look at the gentleness. 
Jesus had the right to rail against them, to say, you sinners are not allowed to bring another sinner, a fellow sinner before me and not expect to get the same that she's getting. He could have ripped them a new one. Jesus was fully capable of that, but he didn't do that. What he did was he said, hey, he who's without sin cast the first stone, and he just waited. We don't know what he wrote in the dirt. We don't know. Keep her. Got him. <laughs> <laughs> Try again next time. <laughs> and he waited. And when the sinner who deserved punishment looks up at him, what does he say? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Gentleness changed this woman's life where aggression wanted to end it. Aggression that was right. They were right. She deserved, according to the law, she deserved to die. They were correct. But what's Jesus' response? Gentleness. The church has got to learn how to do that again. I'm sick and tired of rants on Facebook that accomplish nothing and make us look like idiots. I'm sorry, but they do. Even if your argument is beautifully, eloquently done, you look like an idiot. Why? Because you're arguing on Facebook. I love you. I'm not picking on you. You said you were arguing on Facebook a lot. What was I arguing on Facebook? I don't know. So you told Twitter. me that. Oh, Twitter. What's the difference? How many things? <laughs> now, wait a minute. There, I, there are not. There's not a difference. The point was media ranting. Yes. Social media ranting has never accomplished anything except making everyone involved with the rant angry. That's true. Okay, but that's what we do. That's what we do all the time. We're like, but you're wrong. And who cares? <laughs> A little gentleness in that moment. A soft word turns away wrath. Just, just one little thing is going to accomplish so much more. Your silence will accomplish more than your raised voice a lot of the time. That's, my, that's, that's an easy target, though, is, is that particular one. Let me let me let me turn this back on myself. Can I? Can I for a moment and be transparent with you? The hardest place where it is the place where it's hardest for me to be gentle is with my kids. Okay? It is both simultaneously easy for me to be gentle with them and extremely difficult for me to be gentle with them. When they are evidencing stupidity and rebellion. Everything inside of me wants to rise up and just smack that down. That will not happen in my house. Truly. I just, I do. I want to just, I just want to kill it. This, you can't have that attitude. How dare you speak to your mother that way. I'm going to rip your tongue out of your face. <laughs> okay. That's where my nature wants to go. Guess what? It accomplishes nothing. Railing, ranting, loudness, and powering up with my children. All it does 
is make them turn me off. They stop listening the minute that my volume gets to a certain level. It's like, never mind. I'm done. Gentleness accomplishes a thousand times more in that moment. But it is really hard for me to do that. That's really difficult. To be gentle in that moment is extremely difficult for me. And it's extremely difficult for me not to engage in social media arguments. Because one, I'm good with words and I could probably destroy you. <laughs> Just going to be honest. I can probably think circles around most of the people that have anything to say on Facebook or Twitter or wherever else. Okay, those that's my gift mix. I would have made a good lawyer. I know this. Okay? But is it helpful? Time are we? Okay. Let's move on. You guys have anything else to say? I think that portion that's really cool about that. Paul says, you know, it's a really hard decision for me to make whether I should stay here and live as Christ or die and be with Christ. And then it also shows gentleness in Christ as well. That it was a hard decision for him to decide whether or not to stay in the goodness of the church that he's written to and the goodness of the people that he was going to minister to or be with God because when it comes to that decision, you know, we're thinking eternally, thinking about being with Christ, that, you know, being out of sadness and sorrow and all that stuff and being with God and the perfect and not have to worry about anything else, um, not have to deal with stupid people. <laughs> having to deal with, you know, those frustrating moments in life. I think that's a really cool thing. It shows that he was really trying to be the best portion of Christ that he'd want to be. And um, it also goes along with, I think, the message that Jesus said before he rose up to heaven, I have to leave so someone else can come. Mm -hmm. That's good. I feel like your statement just kind of implies that, not necessarily, but almost that Jesus is perfectly all right with making that, like, let, letting him make that decision, like, like, okay, Paul, like, you can choose, like, go ahead, come up here, like, like, Jesus is completely okay with that. Yeah. Okay, so that statement, like, that's kind of going off of, just really highlights, like, how much God cares about free will. Yeah. Just telling everybody what to do. Well, and how much Jesus would enjoy having Paul face-to-face. You think we're the only ones that bemoan our distance? Uh, to the different side, don't talk about it. Breaks my life. I am thoroughly convinced that the Lord longs for our presence more than we long for His. Yeah, I'm thor I'm thoroughly convinced that the Lord desires our presence, our attention, more than we desire His. I, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced. And honestly, the, the sooner we really get that, every worship service is going to change for you. Yes, that's what I say. Imagine Jesus singing over you, open up the heavens, I want to see you. Yeah, like that Just a Little While song? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, that Every song. single time I hear that song, that, I think about that. It wrecks. Ah, ah. Oh, I'm going to get 
this rat even more than I already do. It's not even me singing that to God. It's that that moment when you sing it in unison with Jesus. That's that's oh. Yes, I know. Yeah, already read me enough, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in terms of like saying that with tears. <laughs> good. No, I mean it good. I, I, I think so many times we, we come into a worship service ready to like arm wrestle God into spending time with us. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you will come down. <laughs> and like God's like, Uncle, Uncle, I'll be there. You know, no, it's the opposite. It's God finally going, I've been waiting for you this whole time. Finally, I get three minutes of your attention. Yes, I'm so excited. You know, I, the, I will never forget the day that I realized that my wife wanted to spend time with me as much as I wanted to spend time with her. I'll never forget that. That was like the greatest revelation of my universe. Like, <gasps> this isn't me like going, hey, please, can we spend some time together? No, this is, she was just as excited about that as I was. And, and that just flipped my whole universe around. And Jesus, <laughs> he loves us. He wants us. Yet, Paul says, to remain on, the flesh, on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. Okay? Guys, right there. Right there. Your, for your progress and joy in the faith is a beautiful description of what ministry should be about. Why are you doing ministry? Why, why are you in this and why are you doing ministry to other people? For their progress and for their joy in the faith. That's what you're trying to do. Stir their, them to move forward with Jesus and to have more joy in him than, he do, than they do right now. That's where John Piper and I all agree. As a pastor, my job for my people is to foster their progress and their joy in Jesus. That's what I want to do. Progress brought about by chopping down what stands in the way. That's what the word means, your progress. Hacking through the undergrowth to make a path forward. That's a Greek word for your progress. It's literally getting things out of their way so they can move forward. And joy in the faith. We cannot forget that it is the desire of the Lord that we have joy in the faith. Are we working for the joy of our people to be grounded in and flowing powerfully out of faith in Christ? So that, verse 26, this is our last verse for the day. So that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. 
your boast in me. That's interesting. How should churches feel about the men and women that God has raised up to minister to them? Your proud confidence in me may abound. In other words, we need to try, we need to seek to be mentors that people are grateful for. Amen. We've got 15 minutes. I know, right? But I don't want to go into the next thing because the next verse, I have literally almost an entire page of notes on the next verse. And we won't be able to do that all in 15 minutes. So what's going on in your brains, folks? Yeah. <laughs> process with me. I'm still trying to process the whole thing. I don't know why exactly. That's not a Stranger Things reference. Oh, okay, that's totally <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm a, well, I was aware that actually I made that. Um, because that part of the mm-hmm. when we worship God and we love God, we need to worship who he is and not what he's done. God loves us who we are and not what we have done for him Amen. and not what oh god so literally the Lord's been working for the past month saying you know um, it, I can't remember who said it it was a missionary or something like that that I knew that went to like Africa and some other countries and the, the eastern part of the world where it was like first uh, third world countries kind of stuff they said they sing songs to God praising him for who he is not what he's done yeah. and he said the first worship service he came back to in America he felt literally sick because they're like, oh, God, thank you for all your blessings. Thank you for everything you've done for us. And he's like, that's not the heart we're supposed yeah. to have. Amen. And I just the thought of, you know, um, when we sing a song to God, we're singing it to him, but he's also singing it to us. That thought of we should love God for not what he's done for us, um, but for who he is. God loves us for who we are, not what we're going to do for him, not what we've done for him, or not even what we've done against him. Went to a men's conference on Saturday which was really good. 500 assembly got men in the room. Awesome. Uh, it was good. It was a good day. Um, and uh, the guy, Dick Foth, was the preacher. He was awesome. Um, but he, he goes back to this. He was talking about Jesus being baptized in water. And when he comes up out of the water, God the Father says, This is my beloved Son in whom I will please. And he said, And it struck me that the Father was saying this over Jesus before Jesus had done any ministry at all. That God the Father was saying, I am well pleased. This is my boy in whom I'm well pleased. And just wait to see what he's about to do. So Jesus had ringing in his ears for the next three years of ministry. And as he's hanging on the cross, he had the voice of his father ringing in his ears. This is my boy and I'm already pleased in him. It's not about what he's, what he's already done. It's about who he is right now in this place, in this moment. He's my son. Yeah. Okay, have you ever read 
You read John 17, right? Yeah. Okay, this is where God, like where Jesus is in the garden, and he's about to be taken to, um, I don't know, to die. Yep. And so what really messed me up, what's messed me up for like a while, is how, okay, in the beginning, it's like, He's taught, he's like about to pray, and he's praying for all the believers in the future and now and stuff. And like, I've like looked over this and like, it says, um, and then he's like, You have given him all authority, he's talking about himself, over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And then, like, in the next verse, it's like, you can see his, he's continuing to pray. And then he talks about us and like the people, like the people of God, and he's like, What you have given me, and the term you have given me is that like, you have given me these people. Like, it is a privilege for me to die for them. And that has, like, like messed me up, like, these past few weeks. Like, I'm like, whoa. Because nobody ever preaches on that. And nobody ever preaches on the prayer that he was praying for us before he went to go taken away, to be led away. I don't know. Maybe I could be interpreting that No, well. you're not. But, I, I, that prayer is one of my absolute favorite portions of scripture um the verse kind of the 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 face melting guitar solo of that verse okay okay (laughs) come on it's the it's the you shall not pass of that verse okay okay is when jesus says when jesus says because you love me and then he says, and you have loved them with the same love that you have loved me. Yeah. This is the son of God saying, my father loves you as much as he loves me. How much does God the father love God the son? That's how much he loves you. And he was saying that 2,000 years before you were born. So it wasn't about what you did or what you were going to do. Exactly what I'm saying. Yes. Why is this preach? Why isn't this passage preached in church? I have literally never read Give it in my life years. until a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, why don't you preach it? I've preached it many times. Just, no, just no, to put. <laughs> oh yes, ma'am. I have just not out of that verse. I've just preached it out of other verses, but I've preached that idea. Oh yes. <laughs> no. Maybe I should preach the Gospel of John next. Do you guys want to do that? You want to walk through the Gospel of John? It's my absolute favorite Gospel, and I would be okay with that. I really would. I really, I love the Gospel of John so much. John is my favorite. John is my favorite. I think, like, it's, okay, so, like, I wrote in my notes, I said, I love the wording given him the idea that God did not just throw us on Jesus. Yeah. Because I feel like some of us, like, have that concept in our heads that God just threw us on Jesus, and, like, Jesus just came to die for us, and he just, like, threw us on there, like, okay, take care of them, die for their sins, whatever, you know? I have another verse for you. (laughs) 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 Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 2. You ready? Fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Who or what is the joy set before him? You are the joy set before him. <laughs> Hebrews 12, chapter, verse 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. There are people that will tell you that God is the joy that was set before him, but if that's the case, then this sentence doesn't make sense. Because it says, Part of what he was doing, he endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He did those things for the joy set before him, all three of them. And if sitting at the right hand of God was one of the things that he did for the joy set before him, then guess what? Sitting at the right hand of God wasn't the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him was you. You are the joy set before him. And he sat down at the right hand of God for you. That's why he is ruling with at the right from the right hand of God. Yeah. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. You guys heard Reckless Love yet? Tell me you have. Reckless Love is my anthem right now. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. All right. All right, here it comes. Although I don't have I don't have a good sound system. Can I plug in somewhere? By the way, I have I have the non Corey Asbury version. No, my my uh mine is Stephanie Gretzinger. Here we go. I oh yeah, but this is so much better. Oh, you're, you're not wrong. <laughs> Wait, stop that in my library. That song, play it. Yeah. <sighs> <sighs>